Welcome to the East Memorial Ministries podcast. This week, Jeremy Moore, our Minister of Music and Families, spoke to the Pathfinders Fellowship Group from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and, and discusses how we are called to be pursuing a perfecting faith, prospering love, and perfecting hope. Let's listen. So what we're going to be able to see this morning is the end of the introduction to 1 Thessalonians. You say, we're just finishing chapter 3. Brother Glenn, how many times have we heard him, and, and really it's a message in of itself, but get 35 minutes into a sermon and say, and all that was introduction. It's typical. It's typical for preachers to do that because the introduction outlays the message. And so many times, like Paul does here in 1 Thessalonians, the introduction is broken down and then the meat is done uh, just in rapid fashion. And then there's the amen. Paul is doing that here. So this is wrapping up his introduction. Chapter 4 is going to get into, you could say, the meat of it all, the uh, bringing up what they need to grow in, and then even getting into a little bit of eschatology, the rapture of the church and stuff like that. So we're going to be getting into some fun stuff, but again, it's very rapid pace. But this pastoral prayer I, I was going to throw it into the lesson last week, but I felt like it needed to be isolated because it really helps summarize the whole entire introduction, gives us again the emphasis on why Paul not only loves the church, but is there and praying for and preaching to the church and gives us the emphasis of where his heart is on chapter 4 and chapter 5 and leading into 2 Thessalonians. So it's a pastoral prayer. This is, we're going to be reading the heart of Paul. We've been reading through why he's there, what his mission is. Last week we talked about why, how in the world he could love the church so much. Why does he love the church so much? And we came to the conclusion that it's because he loved Jesus so much. That's the only way he could love the church that much is because he loved Jesus. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm reading through Paul's writings and I want to love the church this much. And, and I realized that I can't love my wife. I can't love the church. I can't love my own children or my friends or my family members the way I need to unless I love Christ the way I need to. And so is that, an, is that a perfect love? Not this side of heaven. But it is a love that is ever-growing, and it's in a process of sanctification. And so I'm looking at Paul's life, and I'm saying, I want to I live like that. And it starts with something very simple. You may have gone to counseling before, maybe premarital counseling. It's simple. It's, where's your relationship with Christ? Joe Davis, he used to say, if you're not reading the Word of God, you're starving yourself spiritually. And it's true. And so what he would ask, counseling, like couples that would come in, you know, you can get into all kind of things. You can get into attitudes at home your view of your spouse, what they you think they need to be doing or attitudes. But it all boils down to where's your spiritual walk with Christ individually and then bringing it together. And so nine times out of ten, there is no relationship with Christ being pursued. Therefore, the relationship in the home is failing because we're all rotten sinners and we all need the help of Christ. There's not one perfect husband or perfect wife or mother or father or son or daughter in this room. But we are and can be more like Christ by studying Him, by loving Him. The second thing that Paul loved the church, the reason Paul loved the church is because he understood uh, the needs of the saints. He understood that the church people were infallible, 
uh, they were rotten sinners, as like I already mentioned. They, even though they looked good on the outside, still had a dirty inside. And even though they were Christians, they still had the tendency to sin and the propensity to sin and fall to temptation. And so he realized, hey, there's a need. And that need is to shepherd them, to continually intercede on their behalf in prayer and to remind them not to be anxious, but to give their hearts and minds to Jesus Christ. And then the third thing that we talked about was that he recognized that the identity of the church was greater than any other entity in this world. The identity of the church was founded and is established upon the rock. Okay, And he says that Peter was going to help build that church and, and that the church is on the living word of God. It is the living God. It's built upon him. And so nothing can separate the church that is the people of God from him. And so Paul recognized that, hey, unlike any, like Amazon, one of the greatest companies in the world when it comes to financials right now, they, they have nothing compared to the church because that tomorrow could fail. It could fall. Stocks could drop. People could stop using it. And it would just be a resting upon humanity. But the church rests upon God. Well, Paul recognized that. The identity of the church is different than any other entity. And so that leads us into his pastoral prayer, which he summarizes all of the introduction. And you're going to recognize some of the words he uses back even into chapter 1. Let's read it together. Chapter 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So I mentioned at the beginning, this is a pastoral prayer, three verses. What I love to see here, and it helps me being a pastor, it helps me understand that a pastor's heart is supposed to always be about his people. I know what a, pa a father's heart looks like. I know that because I, I feel it. I don't have to be taught how to have a father's heart. But the moment my children were born, I loved them with a deeper love than I can even explain. I don't have to train to be a loving father. I know how to be a loving father, but I do know that my love for them increases when my love for Christ increases. Now, as a pastor, there's a little bit more of a pride barrier that you have to break through because yes you love your people and your sheep but they're not your blood they're not your people and so there is a love for the people that only comes from the love of christ it, it's different than your own children i mean sinners that know not christ unrepentant sinners can still love their children but to love the church that takes Christ. And so pastoral prayer of Paul and, and just reading through his writings, not just in Thessalonians, but all the epistles, reminds me that he and a pastor should always be praying for the spiritual growth of their people. It, it, it should be always on their heart and mind. And so when they wake up, there is an extra burden upon them for their flock and, and knowing the situations and knowing the problems. And that's just the things that you know. I know for a fact, I mean, I've been on staff here going on 12 years. 
And I know just by working with Brother Glenn for all these years, the things that he knows and has to deal with that the average church member would never know and has no business knowing. Some very deep inner struggles of people in our congregation over those 12 years that I've been here has been something that a pastor has to wear. It's like a husband coming to a wife and saying that they've been addicted to pornography for 15 years of their marriage. Well, what does that do to the wife? It's a weight. It's a barrier. And the pastor deals with that times 50 of things that he knows. Maybe there's a marriage that is failing and he's trying to work with and through a couple or or individuals. And not only that, but other situations that come along. And so a pastor's heart is has to be very deep. But sometimes people feel neglected by a pastor, especially of a church this size, a very large church for a pastor. And that's because you end up focusing on the ones that are hurt, the ones that are visibly in need of a shepherd. And so you have that picture of the shepherd carrying the one and taking care of the the lost sheep and the others kind of there uh, following. And that's why you have a pastor team, elders who help and look over the flock of the church. And that's why Paul was going through these towns and he was establishing leaders within the church to help shepherd these sheep. Now, don't take this as an insult. And hopefully as sheep, we grow and we are becoming leaders of in and of ourselves. That's why when we're reading through this, we're reading a pastor's heart, but we should be help also seeing what our heart should be like towards the people of God. Um, I do believe that there are many people who maybe have been called to ministry that reject the call. And when I say ministry, I mean full-time giving of themselves. And maybe there's a lot of reasons for that. Maybe it's because they don't want to give up their job or better income and, and have to, maybe they don't want to deal with people. Maybe you just don't really like people, but you feel called. You think, I mean, I don't think Paul liked people very much before he was called. And, and, and some of that just goes together. But again, it, it's all about Christ and the study of Christ. Breaking down this pastoral prayer, this is what I want to do, kind of walk through, because I think this is important, just three verses. But if you look at the beginning, just a few things. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but I just do think, I do think it's very interesting. He says, God the Father and Jesus our Lord. You see that in verse 11. He says, now, may our God and Father, that's a personal contact. He's looking at God in this way as a Father, a personal contact relationship and then he says and our lord jesus he gives him the title lord in this so he's making jesus in this the sovereign one a lot of times when we pray we pray to jesus we pray to the more personable one that we think of and that's jesus paul here flips it and we pray to god the father as well but he flips it here and he's given the personal emphasis to god the creator and he's given the sovereign emphasis to jesus christ the one who came and suffered and died for us But I think what I find most interesting here, and not interesting as in I didn't know this, but just that he gives emphasis, is that he is in this giving the God the Father and Jesus our Lord. You can assume the Holy Spirit as well. He is giving emphasis to the fact that you can pray to any three of the Trinity. It's not that God gets prayers for some categories and Jesus gets prayers for others. It's that we can pray to God the Father, to Jesus the Lord, to the Holy Spirit. 
you know, it's weird to think that you can pray to the Holy Spirit, but Holy Spirit is one with God the Father and Jesus the Son. And so the Holy Spirit's not taboo. The Holy Spirit lives and resides within us. And so the Holy Spirit can be called out to as well. So you have God the Father, Jesus the Lord, but look what, there's a singular description here, Himself. So it's one. Now may our God the Father Himself and our Lord Jesus, that's not correct grammatical English. If you try to write a paper today and say two people being a singular entity, it would not make sense. You would probably have to say something like, now themselves, God the Father and Jesus our Lord. But Paul is saying, no, one, Himself. I just thought that was something that needed to be pointed out too because the Trinity is an important aspect of who God is. It's a personable, it's creator universe, it's sovereign. It's the Holy Spirit that lives within us. But the second part, and I think a, a more important part of where Paul is heading in this direction, in this verse, is direct our way. So look at this portion. It says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Well, Paul knew that Satan had hindered him. We already talked about this earlier in chapter 1. He gave the emphasis of his not being able to return to Thessalonica to Satan. And so he knew that Satan was hindering him. He was bringing up roadblocks in his life and he was hindering him to return. Chapter 2, verse 18 gives specific emphasis on this. And even though Timothy had visited and returned with a great report, we talked about this last week, the Thessalonians, they are completely and, and totally still ser serving the Lord Jesus. They are reading His Word. They are studying. They are serving in the church. They long to be with you. And Paul was greatly encouraged by that. And we talked about that last week. But even though Timothy gave a good report, Paul still felt an urgency to get back with them, to see his spiritual children again. The question is why? And so we talked about how he can love the church so much. We walked through that last week. But why did he feel this strong need to get back? And it goes back to understanding the entity of the church, understanding the needs of the church. But basically, he said it in verse 10. Look at verse 10. He says, last week we talked about this, As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. That complete what is lacking in your faith is the why. That's why Paul desired to get back. That's why Paul was praying earnestly night and day to get him back. And he was giving the and he was attributing the, the fact that he could only get back by the Lord. So even though he attributed the fact that Satan was bringing up roadblocks, he still knew that it was God's will for him not to, for some whatever reason, not be able to get back to the church at Thessalonica at that time. And so he was praying in verse 11 to the Father, to the Son, to direct our way to you. He knew that it wasn't Satan ultimately that was hindering him. Jesus was allowing it, but he was asking the Father and Jesus to direct his way, their our way, the team, back to them. Galatians 1, 4, you don't have to turn there, but it says, "...who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age." He recognized even in salvation that the only deliverance can come from Christ. So it wasn't just in salvation. It was in every aspect, even in getting back to the church at Thessalonica. And then in chapter 3, we read this earlier, or we will read this 
um, in, in the next few uh, months. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, May the Lord direct your hearts, so this is even the hearts of the people, to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. May the Lord direct your hearts. He didn't say, may the ministry team, may the elders, may the deacons. He says, may the Lord direct your hearts. And so he does, he gives, he attributes the sovereignty to the Son in this prayer at the beginning. You know, another thing that I, I think that is really good, and I, I will have you turn there. Just hold your place. Turn to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, verse 1. It's good that Paul is following the biblical admonition of the Psalms here in Psalm 37, verses 1 through 5. I'll read this. Look at the words of David here. He says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. That's, that's what Paul is biblically experiencing and mandating. Not only in his life, but he's, he's demonstrating that for the church. And then in Proverbs chapter 3, 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths, direct your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So Paul, he says, direct our way, Lord Jesus, the sovereign one. Direct our way, God the Father. And the reason was because in verse 10, he says that he's been praying night and day. He can see their face and complete what is lacking in their faith. So we have faith in, chapter, in verse 10. He desires for them to have more faith. Secondly, in verse 12, he says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in what? Love. All right, so we have faith, verse 10. Love, verse 12. And then in verse 13, he doesn't say the word hope, but he's, he's talking about hope. Verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Hope. And he already emphasized this in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians' introduction, that they may have greater faith, they may have a prospering love and a purifying hope. Perfecting faith, prospering love, purifying hope. And so what's the why? Why is he wanting to get back to the church? It's because he desires that they have a stronger faith, that they have greater love, and that they have a purifying hope, one that is with purpose. And so that is Paul's reasoning for wanting to get back. Look at verse 12 again. He says, And may the Lord make you increase. Increase. Well, let's use that word for both love and faith. Have you ever heard people say you need more faith? I, I know that I've probably even said that to people along the way. You need more faith. You need to grow your faith. And there's nothing wrong with that phrase, but what does that actually mean? How do you, what is faith? First of all, it's believing in something that's true, right, in the, in the Christian context. Faith is believing in something that's true. 
Faith is believing what the Word of God says. You can say faith in salvation, that Jesus came to this earth, He died, He rose again. We have faith in that. So increasing our belief in something that is true, how do you do that? How do you increase your belief in something that is true? It's not like some magic spell can come upon you and you just have a deeper faith. It's a practical thing and it's very simple. It's what we've just talked about. To increase your faith, to have a stronger faith, you have to have a deeper knowledge of the truth, right? So if you're believing in something that's true and that's faith, to increase that faith, it's really, it's not this way, it's this way. It's increasing the knowledge of what is true. And so if you want a deeper faith, it's not that you just will it to be. You actually have to put effort into it. You already believe, but to have a deeper belief, you have to study it even more. I mean, I'm going to use a crude example here, but like Nate, he's a chemical engineer. Just the sound of that sounds disgusting and gross because I do not like math. I mean, just I have never been a big math guy. When I hear chemical engineer, I think big money, right? I mean, I'm not saying you make big money, but he's one of the most generous guys I know. But when you talk to Nate and hear his story, you want to know the reason why he went into chemical engineering? He struggled with this in his life. It's because he wanted to make money. This is going way back, right, Nate? I mean, he wanted to make money. He says, I'm going to do the thing that they say is the hardest because I'm going to tackle it. But he did it. I mean, you stuck with it. I can't imagine doing that, Nate. You, you impress me, man. But the Lord has blessed Nate through that. He, he's still working with the same company that he's, he's worked with right out of college that a professor helped lead him to. And it's been a great, great fit for Nathan. When I think of that, though, chemical engineering, you know, could I have done it? Maybe. How many years did it take you to get that degree? Just four? I could have maybe done it in 10. I don't know. <laughs> I could have maybe gotten there eventually, failed a few times, and I don't know. But I could have put my mind to it, and I could have done it, right? We, we, we could do it. But to have a greater knowledge of chemical engineering, I can go to lunch with Nate, and I can get a basic knowledge, and then I can will my, my knowledge of that to happen. Like, you know, I just want to be a, a better chemical engineer, it's not going to happen without studying all that weird junk that you had to study, <laughs> right? All those hours put in the library. But in order to get where you were, you had to put some effort into it. That, that's, that's what it is with faith. And so when you look at somebody and you say, you know, they just need a deeper faith, they need to have some practical aspect to that. What, what does that look like? What does that mean? It means they need to be in the Word, they need to be studying and being taught the Word. So what's the church mandate? The church is, it gathers to grow in our faith, to be taught, to, to teach the Word of God. And that is the supreme reason we gather as a church. It's not to uh, sing the best music. Yes, we need to be singing. But it's not about the music program. So if people pick a church because of the music program, that's not the right reason. The emphasis of the church should be the preaching, so much so that we should be able to come in here and sing a few tunes a cappella and hear the Word of God boldly preach and still be happy in Jesus. 
And so that's Paul. I mean, Paul is he's he's praying that I can, can I please, Lord, get back to these people, not because I feel like I'm the end all. I'm the one that's going to be able to grow their faith, but I'm a shepherd and I desire for them to learn. I desire for them not to stumble, to fall to the tempter. And I want to see their faith grow. I want to teach them. The second thing in verse 12, and we've already said this, but to increase in love. Well, look at chapter 4, verse 9. Just It should be your next page. Over. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. It, so Paul realizes that he doesn't need to be there physically with them to teach them how to love. Just like I didn't have to be taught how to love my children when they were born. God teaches us how to do that. I've heard Brother Glenn share testimony of getting saved at the age of 19. And it's like he walked in and Brother so-and-so, who he thought was nasty because he used to hack up his snot in his little rag at church every Sunday, he now looked over and now had a deep love for Mr. So-and-so. You know what I'm saying? I've heard him say that. But that love didn't have to be taught by a, to a 19-year-old. He walked in and Mr. So-and-so was now a brother in Christ and he wanted to, he loved him. That love didn't have to be taught. And Paul recognizes that. He says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. Look over in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, to your left. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. That sounds like the end of this right until the coming of our lord with all the saints so he desires that they increase in love and then lastly verse 13 there's a lot in this verse but he says so that he may establish your hearts blameless your hearts that's the seat of our emotions that's where we make a lot of our decisions it's from the way we feel and if we're not in the word and in a right relationship with Christ, then you know, because you, you've lived your life for however long you've been born or been alive, you know that your emotions change with the wind. And the only foundational aspect of your emotions is what you give to Christ. And so he's, he's no, he understands that their hope needs to be in Christ. And so his desire is that their hearts are blameless, that they're established because it's the seat of their emotions. I mean, you can ask Abigail, we have made emotional decisions before, and it's not that we can't get out of it. It's not that maybe Christ couldn't use it, but we'll make decisions and think, I wish we'd have done that a little different. You know, we feel differently now than we did then, and the reason we feel differently now is because maybe we've grown a little bit in our walk with Christ. But you just keep moving on, and that's the beauty of sanctification. But he desires that they not be tempted. He knows the tempter will come, and he desires that their, their hearts will be established. So, I mean, what does this tell us about ourselves? If Paul is writing to the church of Thessalonians, and he's writing to us, what does this tell us about our hearts? We realize and recognize, we need to, that our hearts, they can fool us. You know, we can respond. That's why even in an argument with your loved ones, you need to take a step back. You need to make sure that your heart is in check that your emotions are grounded where they need to be, that you hold back some things that you want to say at times because it may not be how you genuinely feel. It may be how you feel in the moment, but you may be not being 
Christ-like at the moment. What does this tell us about ourselves? It tells us that we, too, must strive to have blameless living, holy living, purity of life. We know the struggles that we face. There's not a man or woman in this room because the Bible constantly talks about sexual temptation. There's not a man or woman in this room that doesn't struggle with temptation. And the Bible says over and over again that the root of that, a lot of times, is sexual temptation. You may say, well, I'm a happily married man or woman, but you'd be lying to everyone around you if you said you've never had a sexual temptation or a lustful thought since you said I do. You say, oh, does Abigail know you feel that way? The Bible says that. And so she thinks that I am Mr. Perfect that is just always thinking and doing correctly. Then she doesn't, by the way. Then, then she's wrong. Then she, that, that's a setup for a failed marriage. And so we have to be able to work with one another, not just in a marriage, but in the church. We can't look at Mr. So-and-so and think that he's Mr. Holy and Righteous and has never done wrong. Or We're setting ourselves up for failure. We are rotten to the core. The only thing that separates us from the despicable sin of the world is Jesus Christ. And so, yes, we are different now. Our desires are different. However, we still, like Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, what does it say about us? Can be tempted by the tempter if we're not establishing the seat of our emotions where it needs to be. So there's up and down moments, right? I can think back, and I do try to keep a, it's gotten really small, but I try to keep some sort of a, I call it a Solomon notebook, a, a book of wisdom, you know, so I can go back and glean on things that I did that was stupid and, and, and get better. But, but I try to think back in years past, and there's some moments where I felt on a spiritual high mountain, and then there's moments where I just feel in the valley. And you know what? It's not, my circ- it's not the circumstances around me that make me feel that way. It's my relationship with Christ. Paul realizes that. Paul recognizes that, and he's willing to be honest about it. And the Thessalonians seem to be honest about it. And that's what the church in today's society is missing. Our church is large. We try to break it down into smaller groups so that we can have real relationships, so that we can try to get off the pedestal that we like to place ourselves on and be real, so that we can do ministry together. And Paul is saying that it, it takes selfless love. Selfless, selfless love. I like this. I think John MacArthur said this. He says, selfless love is the opposite of selfish lust. Humble love is opposite of pride. So if you don't love, you, you turn on yourself. If you don't love people, your spouse, Christ, you turn on yourself and that is when you are found in sin, in lustful living. Leviticus 19.2, 1 Peter 1.16, both talk about being ye holy, for I am holy, and there's a reason for that. And so when you find yourself living for self, desiring selfish things, then you have probably taken your eyes off of Christ. Your love for Christ is not where it needs to be. Your love for people is surely not where it needs to be. And your love has turned directly all towards you, and it is a love of pride and selfish lust. And Paul 
recognizes that. And he desires that they know him, they trust him, and they love him more. And this prayer is important as we launch into some of the specifics to understand this is Paul's heart, this is a pastor's heart, this is the shepherd's heart, but this is who he's speaking to. We have to be real with ourselves and recognize that that is who we are. That's who we are. And when we finally seat him at the Bema seat judgment, that's the time of rewards. That's when he speaks at the end at the coming of our Lord Jesus with his saints. We know that we will be called and scrutinized before the judge. And that should be motivation for us. Every action that we do, it should motivate us to know that everything that we do and think will be laid bare as the judge opens up the book. And so that should be motivation. Not what people think of us, but of what Christ, what Jesus, what God the Father thinks of us. And that is where our hope should be placed. And so it's, it seems like an extensive goal. It seems like it's, it's hard to grasp and hard to reach because we won't be blameless. But it's our goal. My goal is to love Abigail deeper than any other love that I've ever experienced. Love her deeper than I could love myself, which is hard. But you know what? That is what God calls me to do. I'm not going to be perfect in it. And she recognizes that. But that's the goal. So my goal is to be blameless and holy and righteous before the judge. Seems extensive, but that's the goal. It's not about perfection, Brother Glenn says, but about direction. And so we have to be directing ourselves in that way. Paul's pastoral prayer is a perfecting faith, a prospering love, and a perfecting hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. I ask that we can find ourselves um, like the Thessalonians reading this letter for the first time, recognizing that, wow, we need, we need a perfecting faith. And that only comes by deepening our knowledge and our trust in you. We need a prospering love that comes from loving you, that comes from understanding your love for us and the church as a whole. And then we need a perfecting hope, one that does take us to the Bema seat, one that does allow us to see that everything's laid bare, that you see everything we do, and it's, it, we're called to be something that we know we can't be perfect at, but we're called to be blameless and holy and righteous before you. And so may that be the course of our life. May we find ourselves being directed in that way. And may we find ourselves, as Paul emphasized, to have a selfless love that trumps selfish lust. May that be our desire. May we love people more. But God, may we love you more. Be with us now as we enter the time of worship with the rest of our church family. God, please use this service in a great way. Father, that you be honored and praised that we... Um, Father, see the error of our ways, the areas that we can grow in and need to grow and leave joyfully today that we've heard from the word of God and that, no, we're not perfect, but we have a newfound desire and, 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 um, and just a new zeal to live for you this week. We ask these things in your name. We are glad you joined us today. If you have any questions about what was discussed on today's podcast, 
Send us a message on Facebook. Email us at info at eastmemorial.org or call our church office at 334-365-7500. Thanks for listening.